It's Monday, June the 21st, 2021. More than 2.6 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. In today's show, we'll explore the next generation of coronavirus vaccines, which could transform the COVID-19 response and protect against future pandemics. Now, a reminder to you all that this is our penultimate episode. So if you want to keep up with the vaccination story after the jab ends, subscribe to The Economist's Simply Science newsletter, which I write. You'll get a weekly roundup of our best science coverage, including some of our other podcasts like Babbage and The Intelligence. To sign up for free, you can go to economist.com slash more science. Natasha, how are you doing today? I'm really well, thank you. I've been working on a story over the last week about the new COVID antibody drug from Regeneron. You can hear me talking about that, actually, with Jason Palmer on Thursday's episode of our sister podcast, The Intelligence. And of course, I've been taking in the news from the German CureVac mRNA vaccine, which wasn't good as it happens. They've had some interim results from their vaccine and the efficacy is below 50%. So we're going to have to look for other innovations and excitement in the pipeline ahead, I'm afraid. Well, it's a good job that we are talking about innovations today. Joining us again this week is Oliver Morton, The Economist's briefings editor. Oliver, who else but you could join us for a look at the future? Are you looking forward to it? You actually asked to be on this episode. I did. I find thinking about future vaccines a very nice break from thinking about future pandemics. And that is actually fantastic because next up we'll be hearing from one of those scientists who's been developing some very groundbreaking technology. The Pfizer vaccine carries the genetic code known as messenger RNA. That Pfizer are both mRNA vaccines. It's a new type of vaccine and it has proven... They both have messenger RNA, the mRNA. That's the secret sauce. Essentially, the blueprint... For the-, the pandemic has brought to prominence a new type of technology, vaccines that use messenger RNA, such as those developed by Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna. They work by delivering molecular instructions into the body cells which then produce proteins that mimic parts of the coronavirus. The body's immune system responds by creating antibodies. Messenger RNA vaccines have been vital in fighting COVID-19. More than 545 million doses have been administered around the world. But scientists are already working hard to improve the technology. The next generation of COVID-19 vaccines is on its way. I'm Robin Shattuck. I'm from Imperial College and I work on developing vaccines against a number of targets, but uh, in the last 18 months have been very focused on COVID-19. Professor Shattuck's team at Imperial College London is developing self-amplifying RNA vaccines. The vaccine that we work on at the moment is related to RNA vaccines, but it has an added trick in that it allows the RNA to be copied. It encodes an enzyme that copies the RNA. And that means that we can use much lower doses 
because we get higher levels of protein expression. In a traditional mRNA vaccine, so this is the, the Pfizer-BioNTech one and the Moderna ones that are being used all over the world right now, they inject a little bit of RNA and that creates a facsimile of the coronavirus and then the body's immune system responds to that by producing antibodies. Just what, what's the step extra that you do? Well, it's interesting you say traditional mRNA vaccines, given the technology's just come of age. But the extra step that ours does is, as well as encoding that spike glycoprotein, it encodes an enzyme, a polymerase, that copies the RNA. So when it gets into the cell, instead of being a single copy, it may make a thousand copies of the instructions to make the spike, and it makes a thousand more spikes. And therefore, you can use a much smaller vaccine amount to create, uh, hopefully, a similar effect. That's the promise. And that's important for manufacturability, hopefully for reducing costs and global access. What other advantages are there with your technology? So mRNA vaccines are great, but also they have to be stored at incredibly cold temperatures and, and they're very expensive. Yes. So mRNA vaccines initially were required to be stored at ultra cold temperature. And that's because nobody had put the work in to make them more robust um, because nobody was at that stage thinking about mass production. We've been working on stabilising it at refrigerated temperature and can go out for six months. And I'm sure the other companies are, are putting a lot of work in that area. So I think that we'll see in the future that RNA vaccines will become less and less temperature dependent. OK, so at what stage is your technology at the moment? Um, you've started clinical trials. How are they going? So the clinical trials are going well. We have finished our first phase of testing and it looks safe. It's giving us an immune response. We have to look at how competitive that immune response is against the vaccines that are already out there. But at the same time, we're working on second and generation modulations of the platform. So we're improving it all the time. And your vaccine, hopefully when it's approved, will come a lot later than the vaccines obviously that are being used right now. Um, so can you just explain to me where and how you see it being used, given that the, the first generation vaccines might cover a large part of the world? Where does your sort of technology fit in? We're focusing on positioning the technology with variants so that it could be used as a boosting technology. And we need to remember that in terms of global access, we still need many billions of doses and we may need many billions of doses to give boosters. So it's not that this is a quick journey and that everything will be solved by the first candidates that are out there. We're going to be needing to work on this for many months, if not years to come. Tell me what needs to happen next in terms of finishing trials or further investments to actually bring the Imperial College vaccine to market. One of the aspects is the competitiveness. So we need to have significant support from a pharma company, for example, in order to raise the funds to do large scale trials and large scale manufacturing, because we don't have a manufacturing facility at our beck and call. And when I look at the finances, you know, the, the companies that have got to authorization have actually invested several billion dollars. And our approach so far is in, in the few millions, important millions, but there's a big gap there. And so it's whether anybody will pick us up and say, actually, we want to take this technology forward for this pandemic, or potentially say, well, 
you're not there yet. We want to take you forward for future pandemics and future vaccines. Of course, the platform is possibly the most exciting bit of this. Uh, What other diseases might be amenable to your platform? That's the beauty of the platform is it's very flexible. So we're already looking at a, a wide range of viral candidates from obvious things like influenza, other pandemic threats like Ebola, Lassa fever, but utilizing it in research as well for HIV vaccines, for example. But the same technology can be applied to cancer vaccines, to protein replacement therapies. So it's very broad, it's potential for the future. Natasha, in one sense, the RNA platform that Professor Shattuck talked about there is kind of familiar to us now, even though it's very new. But this new element of it where the RNA essentially replicates itself, so you can use smaller doses, how important might that be in terms of vaccine supply? Well, if Pfizer or Moderna were using this approach, in theory, you would have many, many more times the supply of active ingredients. So potentially, we would have been able to produce much more vaccine had we had this technology. And you you might only need one dose of a vaccine like this. So you can see the potential it has. But the sort of existing mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna are really well established. So it's hard to see this new technology, which needs a lot of work put into it, actually displacing vaccines that are in wide use. Oliver, would it really be displacing vaccines? Or is this just the next version of what RNA technology is going to do? I mean, RNA technology for vaccines has only been around for 12 months. Well, no, RNA technology for vaccines has been developed for quite a long time. It's come into its own in the pandemic, but there's been a lot of work leading up to that. That's one of the reasons it was able to move from lab to arm so quickly. But I think you're right, Alok. I think that this is obviously one of the ways you would consider for making future mRNA vaccines. And two things about it. One is, it's just very neat to take a system that otherwise only viruses use, the ability to make copies of RNA, which human cells don't need to do. They make copies of RNA from DNA, not from other RNA. So that's really cool. But the other thing is that this is a technique which would make you produce more of the protein that's being produced by the vaccine in individual cells. Um, So you're hyping up the system in individual cells, so they produce lots of the protein and getting into fewer cells. And I can imagine, very speculatively, that there might be applications perhaps in cancer work, which is where a lot of the mRNA vaccine development up till now has been focused, where getting some cells to produce a lot of the protein that you're looking for might be a particularly useful thing. There might be some other indications where you want more cells producing less protein. So this allows you to just look at a broader range of applications for mRNA technology. Natasha, how important do you think the self-amplifying technology itself might be? I'm hoping the current pandemic is going to allow us to move this technology forward as far as possible because it's going to give us another vaccine platform and that will expand our ability to tackle different infectious diseases. And Also, as we look at establishing mRNA facilities in resource-constrained countries, it could be very useful to have a platform that didn't need larger supplies of raw materials and ingredients. And lastly, there's one really, really cool thing you could do with this kind of self-amplifying mRNA. Now, at the moment, what we're doing is when we're vaccinating We're giving essentially the instructions to make the spike protein, which then stimulates the body to produce 
the antibodies. But what you actually could do is give instructions to make those antibodies in the first place. Now, the problem with that is that these antibodies will then wane. It's not a sort of long-term approach, but it's a sort of halfway house between vaccination and giving antibody therapies, which is called passive immunity. Um, Oliver, could we just step out a little bit and just talk about the other vaccines that are becoming available? Novavax has just been approved for its uh, protein subunit vaccine, which is a different type of technology to RNA and the other traditional ones. What's coming along that uh, stokes your interest? Actually, not a huge amount. As Natasha said at the top of the programme, the CureVac vaccine has had a bit of a setback, but we have excellent vaccines. The thing about self-amplification, though, that One of the things that really strikes me is it brings back the extraordinary cosmic disjuncture between the scale of the pandemic and the scale of the response. If you're using one microgram doses, as Professor Shattuck thinks that he can, then you get 8 billion doses is the same as the wine content of a case of wine. And I just think that's incredible. Did you work that out just now or did you had you pre-work that out? <laughs> That's incredible me- mental arithmetic. I, I worked it out while we were talking and I'll probably <laughs> go back and check. But it seems to me that there are eight kilos of wine in a case of wine. And that's eight billion, eight billion doses for eight kilos. That's quite something, isn't it? Natasha? One of the things that's worth mentioning is many vaccine makers are working on new variant vaccines to deal with strains like the Brazilian and the South African strain. But there's actually a kind of ongoing debate about whether they're going to be needed, certainly in most countries, and that whether a third dose is going to be sufficient to protect against the variants that we have in circulation. Variants are a problem if you're trying to essentially cut transmission. But the conversations I'm having are along the lines of, well, everybody's kind of accepted. We're not going to cut transmission and the virus is going to circulate and we're going to have to live with that. And so all the vaccines that we have right now seem to be working well against severe disease. And at this point, it looks like governments are pretty much satisfied with that. We may not need so many completely novel vaccines. We may be able to manage with the ones we've got now. And even if we do have to tweak vaccines, we could end up making a bivalent vaccine. That is a vaccine that has protection against two kinds of strains. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story that I liked recently was in our business section by our Barcelby columnist. He was arguing that since hybrid working is here to stay, it does raise the question of how it'll actually be organised. Will companies, for example, let their employees just choose whichever days they want to come into the office? Or are they going to employ something a bit more strict than that? To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash the jab poll to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. Improvements in platform technologies should give the world a bigger choice of vaccines in the future. But other innovations in the storage and distribution of vaccines are already making an impact on global access to the jab. Imagine living in a remote village where road connectivity is poor. 
how can the right number of vaccines get there swiftly and be kept at the right conditions to stop them from spoiling? One solution is drones. Now, Natasha, you've been learning all about drone delivery of vaccines. Tell me more. Yes, I spoke to Moz Siddiqui, who's the head of private sector partnerships and innovation at Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. And Gavi and its partners have, for a few years now, been helping to set up initiatives to use drones to deliver vaccines and other medicines in some countries. And it's become quite useful during the pandemic. The challenges that we've seen is getting the vaccines to populations, uh, particularly those who are hard to reach in areas where there may not be sufficient refrigeration capabilities or where there may be questions around how many vaccines are needed at that particular time, given the fact that it's you know, a quite an unpredictable sort of demand side. And so Drones have come to the fore as a mechanism to provide that on-demand delivery. Zipline is a drone system, a partner that we've been working with since 2016. We had some support from the UPS Foundation as well. And essentially, it is a drone delivery network. And what that means is, as a system provider, you may not know how many vaccines will be needed in a particular instance. What Zipline does is bring that through an application on a mobile phone. So a health worker can say, I've seen how many vaccines are needed based on how many people are coming to the health facility at the moment. I place an order. That order gets sent to a distribution nest. The nest then fulfills that order. They're packed into a drone. There's a lot of safety checks on the drone itself. And then the vaccines are just shoot off through a ramp. And they fly autonomously to that specific region, and they parachute out um, to a degree of accuracy where the health worker who's requested the vaccines can pick them up and then administer them as needed. And have you seen these drones in action at all, and particularly during this pandemic? We first started under the leadership of the government of Rwanda in 2016, where they were using the drone delivery for other essential medicines, such as blood delivery, We've moved to Ghana. Personally, I've been to these, these sites from Rwanda and Ghana. But now, obviously, where you see an existing platform like this that has been running for routine immunization and other commodities, that's now pivoted towards COVID-19 vaccine delivery. Ghana was one of the was the first country to receive vaccines through COVAX. And to date, the Zipline distribution system has delivered 25,000 COVID-19 vaccines. So tell me what it's like to watch a drone kind of take off with things like vaccines. It's quite remarkable. When you're on the distribution side, you only see it deliver. And then it comes back. But on the receiving end, what you hear is this slight buzz. And you see you see the drone overhead. It opens up its belly and out comes out a parachuted box that land safely at the feet of the hospital or the facility. That's really quite inspiring to see that on-demand delivery within 15 to 45 minutes of that order being placed, that vaccine is available. And there's some really long-term implications around drone delivery and what that means for supply chain systems broadly. 
We've talked a lot about drones, but I wonder when you look ahead sort of into the next 12 months, two years, five years, what kind of innovations do you see coming along the line that might help us even more in getting these vaccines out there? Some of the technologies and innovations that we're looking at are quite groundbreaking, but it's over a longer term. So one of the things that we're trying to do is accelerate the deployment of barcodes on every single vial. So we're able, we as Gavi, COVAX, and also countries are able to track where that vial is at any one period of time. And that requires a a very strong supply chain network that we put in place that we're building as we go. The other is, can we imagine a situation where vaccines necessarily don't need to be put in a cold chain that are designed in such a way that they're thermostable? Now, if you have that, that means that distribution can be much more effective and much more wide-ranging. And then there's another technology that we're looking at is around whether we need to have an injection at all. So whether we can have vaccines delivered by patches, these stickers or plasters effectively that have micro needles in them that enable the vaccine to be distributed and administered that way. Natasha, as well as drones, you talked about so many interesting concepts for how vaccines might be delivered and stored and everything in future. So let's just go through some of those. Um, What are some of the benefits to vaccines that don't come in injectable form, apart from the fact that injections are horrible and I hate them? One of the really exciting ideas is a patch, a vaccine patch. Uh, There's a firm called Vaxus, which is an Australian biotech firm. And they have this nine by nine millimeter array of tiny little projections on the back of a patch. The vaccine is coated onto it. And this patch is stable for 30 days at 25 degrees. So in theory, you could stick it in the post and send it to someone and have them administered to themselves. Then you've got nasal vaccines. And there's a group at the University of Hong Kong that is starting trials on one. And one of the really interesting things about nasal vaccines, other than the fact that they're really easy to give, you know, especially to children, they're used in children actually for flu. But the interesting thing is that a coronavirus nasal vaccine could stimulate what's called the mucosal response. And basically the immune system is particularly vigilant in patrolling what are our mucosal tissues. And so these are the moist linings of our nose, our mouth and our lungs. And so stimulating immunity in those places could create a vaccine that could do really well at halting transmission. So that's something that's terribly exciting to explore. What about um, the current vaccines themselves? We talk almost every episode about how the mRNA vaccines require a cold chain, um, which is hopefully changing. But, you know, what are the existing vaccine companies doing to make sure that those vaccines are a bit more accessible? Freeze-drying vaccines is a really promising approach to storing and distributing the, in fact, all vaccines, but particularly the Pfizer vaccine, because it's been ordered by the United States in large quantities, 500 million doses, to be delivered in low-income countries. Now, the idea is that you freeze-dry the product in the factory, just like you might freeze-dry a food, and then you ship it, and then you rehydrate it when you need it. And this is something we know that Pfizer is trying to do, and I'm sure all the other firms are trying as well, because it's just so fantastically useful if you can make it work. Hugely useful. I think that's really interesting because it highlights, though, a sort of like really big meta issue in developing technologies because 
you obviously see how not having to have a cold chain will make distribution of these life-saving vaccines easier. And of course, no one would not want that. At the same time, there are other things for which you want cold chains to be generally available around the world. The idea that everything that uses a cold chain could be replaced by something that doesn't seems Panglossian. So by doing this, you solve a really pressing, urgent current need, and no one would ask you not to, but you slightly diminish the use case for pushing out cold chains as far around the world as you can. There are lots of examples like this where a technology that meets an urgent need may slightly undercut the incentives for developing an infrastructure that would meet many, many needs. It's a fascinating issue. My answer to that is that it's all going to be solved by the global demand for a cold beer sooner or later. Or Coca-Cola. I'm not sure which cold beer needs to be at minus 80 degrees Celsius. But but let me ask you this question, Oliver and Natasha. Um, if you had the choice, would you rather have your vaccine delivered up the nose, in a patch, or in an injection? I think I'm old school. Needles don't worry me, and I know something's happened. And also, I like the possibility of expressing gratitude to the person doing the administering. I mean, this is a human activity that's passing a gift around humans. And I think it's right to have an opportunity at the point of vaccination to say very sincerely, thank you. That was a great thing. I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing this. Whereas receiving something in the post from Australia and slapping it on my arm might not give me quite the same feeling. I suppose maybe there's a tiny little bit of, well, it's got to hurt a bit. I've got to pay some sort of somatic cost for this great immunogenic boon. Natasha, that's a very sophisticated answer, Oliver. (laughs) Natasha? Uh, A somatic cost. I mean, I have to say, when he was talking, I was thinking I'm a kind of slap it on and go kind of person. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, I'm I'm all for the patch. (laughs) All right. Developing new vaccine technology and improving logistics will both be vital for tamping down COVID-19. But what about beyond this pandemic? Today, there are seven known coronaviruses that can infect humans. But countless more exist in animals such as bats, camels and birds. What if another of these coronaviruses made the jump to humans and caused another pandemic? For some scientists, the only way to be prepared is to develop a universal vaccine that could protect against all coronaviruses. In the past 20 years, this is the third outbreak or pandemic we've had. This isn't going to be the last one. There'll be a SARS-CoV-3 and a SARS-CoV-4 and maybe influenza pandemics as well. Pamela Bjorkman is a biologist at the California Institute of Technology. Her team is working on a universal coronavirus vaccine. So a universal vaccine for the coronavirus, for example, would work by what we've done is display pieces from eight different coronaviruses. And so the idea would be you would encourage the immune system to make antibodies that would cross react against those eight, but also against conserved regions on those eight. So they might be protective against future things that could cross over into humans that we don't even know about yet. So when you say conserved regions, just explain what you mean. If you take a look at all of the coronaviruses that are out there, they're divided into clades. And the clade that is infecting us now is is called a SARS-like beta coronavirus. 
But within that clade, there are many different sequences that are found in bats and pangolins and other animals. And so what I mean by conserved is if you line up their amino acid sequences, you find regions that are the same or nearly the same across the sequences that we have. So we're aiming to get antibodies against those regions, not against the SARS-CoV-2 specific regions. So there are bits of each virus that are similar and other bits that change as the virus evolves. The current vaccines work by trying to create antibodies against the spike protein, the thorns on the outside of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which have become famous. Are those the bits that your vaccines would also work against, depending on which viruses come along? Yes, exactly. What we did is simplify it by only using a region called the receptor binding domain, or RBD, of the spike. And this is a region up at the top. And that's what the virus has to use to bind to its host cellular receptor. And so that part is what uh, most of the neutralizing antibodies are raised against. So we simplified all of this by only using these smaller RBDs and then putting either four at a time on a single nanoparticle or eight at a time on a nanoparticle to try and get these cross-reactive responses. Tell me about the nanoparticle part of it as well. So you take a small part of the viral spike protein uh, and put it onto this nanoparticle. What is that? How do you make it? And what does it, what does it look like? Ah, well, it looks like sort of like a little soccer ball, except it's, you know, much, much smaller. And so we're actually using nanoparticles that were developed at Oxford University by Mark Howorth. And theoretically, you could take that little nanoscopic soccer ball and put how many different uh, coronavirus proteins on there? However many you want. There are 60 places to which you can attach these receptor binding domains. We limited ourselves to eight different ones, so they're arranged randomly. These eight are into the 60 places We've made more than that in some cases, but if we want to make this as a vaccine for people, it's not very practical to make more than eight at a time, I think. And then by injecting that into somebody, the idea would be that by showing the immune system all these different types of protein, you would get a broad antibody response, um, which would hopefully protect against all of them. Have you shown if it works in animals yet? We've been trying to do that for quite a while. We did our immunizations in mice, but there's no system to do a challenge, a viral challenge in that. So what we're doing now is we've got non-human primates that will be injected at the end of June, and then they will be challenged after they've been vaccinated with both SARS-CoV-2 and also conventional SARS, SARS-CoV-1, and SARS-CoV-1 was not represented on our nanoparticles, so this is a test of whether or not the vaccine will be protective against something that is not on the nanoparticle. So the analogy would be like something you don't know is going to cross over into humans. That was going to be my next question. I mean, it sounds like so far to create antibodies, you need to be shown a bit of the virus and then you're body is potentially protected against that virus. But of course, we don't know what virus is going to come along next. So how do you know that your vaccine with the eight pieces of protein from the eight viruses is going to protect against SARS-CoV-3 or SARS-CoV-4 or any of those? Well, we don't know. And that's exactly what we want to prove. But of course, we can't like predict which ones are going to cross over. So what we're doing is the experiment where we pretend that SARS-CoV-1 never crossed over, and then we ask, can we protect against that virus? 
And so what I'm trying to say is if you think of the RBD as like, think of it as your fist, and there's parts of it, which would be your knuckles, that are less, you know, they're not conserved. And so those are the parts that are different in SARS-CoV-2 and SARS-CoV-1 and the other coronaviruses. But the part that's more conserved would be like the palm of your hand. So we're aiming to get the antibodies like against the palm of your hand. And then they might work against, you know, most or all of those types of viruses. Okay. Tell me about the next step of your project, Caltech. You've said that you're going to be trialing the vaccine in non-human primates. And then what happens? Is it possible that you might try it in humans if things turn out safe and effective? Absolutely. There are a lot of regulatory things to get past, but if we can demonstrate proof of concept in non-human primates, yes, we're absolutely ready to try it. Because the great thing is that even though we added eight different receptor binding domains, one of them was SARS-CoV-2, but this vaccine protects just as well against SARS-CoV-2 as a particle that has all of them are SARS-CoV-2. So it could be used right now for SARS-CoV-2, this type of vaccine, but it would also hopefully be protective against future leaks into the human population. Natasha, if a universal coronavirus vaccine were to be developed, how would it best be used? It's going to depend on its characteristics, its efficacy and stability, all sorts of things like that. So it's really hard to say. I would take a stab and say that a universal vaccine would probably first become useful for people who are living in biodiverse areas or working with bats or with animals where coronaviruses are likely to cross over. Um, It's hard to see it having universal appeal unless its efficacy is going to be as good as the COVID vaccines that we have at the moment and give you an additional benefit of protection against something else. And that's a really high bar to cross, I'm afraid. If such a vaccine worked, you could imagine its voluntary use among some healthcare workers, especially in places where spillover is more likely. And you can also imagine a certain amount of stockpiling because as a protein vaccine, this might be quite stable. And even in a world where you can make a new mRNA vaccine very quickly as soon as you have a genetic sequence, you can imagine cases where having an already ready supply of a vaccine that looked likely to work and had already been proven safe might be useful. I mean, these are edge cases, but when you're thinking about a pandemic that costs trillions of dollars, it's worth looking at edge cases to avoid the next one. Oliver, what other research is going on into looking at pan-coronavirus vaccines? And how likely do you think it is that the world will actually get one of these things? I think the likelihood of getting one depends on the degree to which it's seen as a must-have rather than a would-be-nice. I mean, there are various ways you can imagine doing this. Obviously, the way we just heard about in which you present a range of different spike proteins and thus elicit a response to some of the conserved regions. That's one way of doing it. You can also imagine using the self-amplifying technology and give the amplifier a couple of different sequences of the mRNA to amplify. So you could thus get different sequences being made in the body. So that might be another possibility. It's very interesting that in general, the mRNA is one thing, the protein things, this depends on a level of protein design that until recently really wasn't possible. And this idea of building protein nanoparticles, that could have implications a long way beyond vaccination against coronaviruses. 
After we finished talking, um, Pamela did say to me that um, it's been very difficult to secure funding to sort of go into bigger trials, for example. Natasha, does that surprise you? Not really, no. I think everyone was laser focused on just this strain and kind of the risk with the universal vaccine is that it works against lots of different strains, but just not very well. And I think that what you need to do is throw your weight behind that one target in a pandemic. Going forward, it's increasingly looking like we can actually manage with what we've got. And in fact, in some ways, the mRNA vaccines that we have got are a sort of universal vaccine in that we can just swap out the mRNA in six weeks and we've got a different type. And so certainly with regards to the variants, we may be just well covered with what we've got. Oliver, did you want to add anything to whether or not you think a universal vaccine like this is is it's not the priority, perhaps, but do you think it's something that people should continue to be looking at? Well, I'm not in a job that encourages me to look at constraints other than line lengths. So um, it seems to me that we've just had a really spectacular practical lesson in the importance of being able to stop communicable diseases. And it seems to me that this is an odd time not to be looking at expanding and building on the work that's been done there, because Otherwise, we will be taught another lesson that might be yet harsher. Universal vaccines themselves are something that people have been trying to do for a long time in other diseases. Um, Influenza, this disease changes every single year and scientists change the vaccines every single year for them. A universal flu vaccine would be really useful, wouldn't it, Natasha? Yes, it would be incredibly beneficial, life-saving. Flu changes every year and governments have to roll out new versions of the vaccine. Sometimes it doesn't work very well. And they also struggle to get as much uptake in some countries as they need. So a universal vaccine could be amazing. And as it happens, the first phase one trial of a vaccine has just started at the National Institutes of Health. So we should all keep an eye out for that. Oliver, what's the sort of likelihood or problems around a universal flu vaccine? The problem is that the body's immune system looks really hard at the business end of the virus, and that's the bit that the virus is able to change. And so you want to find a way, as with the all-coronavirus vaccines, to get at the conserved regions. And you can do this by design. There's also an approach being used by a company called Centivax that's looking at using very, very low doses of lots of different flu vaccines so that the Cells which recognise the conserved bits see a lot of it, and the cells that recognise the business end only see a little of the one that they recognise. And that, that approach seems to me really interesting. And They've been trying it out in pigs, and it seems to have a broad effect there. So that's another one to be looking at. Um, fun fact here, the very first time I met Dr Sarah Gilbert, Dame Sarah Gilbert now, one of the inventors of the AstraZeneca vaccine, was uh, when she was working on a universal flu vaccine about 11 years ago. That one didn't go anywhere. But uh, I wonder what happened to her. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, it seems sensible to me to keep investigating universal vaccines for future pandemics, if only as an insurance policy. I mean, it might be that they don't work as well as mRNA vaccines and the current cutting edge technologies, but even those will take time to develop. And having some of these things in your back pocket when a new outbreak comes along, just to take the edge off it, I think sounds really sensible. Now, just before we go, are there any stories that jumped out at either of you this week? Uh, Natasha? Well, I did pick up on something interesting, Alok. Um, Do you know what trypanophobia is? Uh, Something about saucepans? 
Well, it's not fear of Wellington boots, which is actually galotsophobia. Uh, trypanophobia is needle phobia, which is, I suspect, That's me. something that... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'm phobic, but I hate needles. I can't look at needles. I can't even look at needles. That's a phobia, Alok, just, just so that you know, that is a phobia. Um, so anyway, um, you are not alone. A new study in Britain suggests that about 10% of people have this fear of needles, but that treating it could improve vaccination rates because it turns out that a lot of people who have fears about the vaccines, that, you know, maybe they cause infertility, editors note they don't, and all those other things are actually coming from a needle phobia. A lot of those fears are driving this sort of behaviour. So if we can treat trypanophobia, then we may also be able to treat hesitancy as well. That's actually very serious and very important. But I'll tell you this, now that I have a name for my condition, trypanophobia, I'm very pleased. It, it gives me a way to tackle this. Oliver, you're a trypanophile, it seems. You, you I think that's going a little hard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I'm worried about with trypanophobia treatment, surely, is that do you have to be exposed to needles a lot? Do you have to be jabbed every day or something? Well, I actually do know a woman who can treat phobias. She's a clinical psychiatrist. And yes, she'll probably get you to talk about needles and then look at photos of needles. It's exposure therapy. And then gradually you would have to sort of experience more of the sort of needle phobia until you were finally told to roll in a bed of needles. No, oh not my quite, God. But, this, this conversation is making me faint. <laughs> it seems to me that's an awful lot of work to undertake to allow a, a few vaccinations. And, you know, there are other sort of like pharmaceutical and folk remedies for short bursts of anxiety, which include sort of like looking the other way and Valium and <laughs> whiskey. And um, <laughs> it's not clear to me that you actually need to fully get over everyone's trypanophobia in order to slightly increase the uptake rate. <laughs> well, from all of that, listeners, please take your choice. Um, Natasha, Ollie, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Alok. That's all from us. The show's producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound designer is Nico Rofast and the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on The Jab next week when in our final episode of the series, we'll reflect on the past 18 months and ask what's next for the pandemic. <laughs>